Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is our last look for now anyway at Hosea. But one of the questions that we could ask after spending four Sunday mornings immersed in this minor prophet is why did we decide to read it together in the first place? I mean, and let's be honest, it, it has been pretty bleak material, certainly the sort of middle two weeks were. And secondly, uh, that world, Israel in the 8th century BC, is a far cry from ours. Our lives and our context are radically different. And so if you wanted to be slightly provocative, you could suggest that this book or this prophecy has little or limited relevance for us today. Well, let me start uh, this morning at the end uh, by reading the final verse of Hosea. This is his last word. Here's his parting shot. It's Hosea 14 and it's verse 9. It's on page 909 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And it's brilliant. And it's brilliant for me because it confirms that Hosea's entire prophecy is incredibly relevant to all those who have any sense. This is brilliant. It's really great. So let's read it together. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Or, in other words, to quote Eugene Peterson's translation of this verse, if you want to live well, if you want to live well, make sure you understand all of this. If you know what's good for you, you'll learn it inside out. And for me, that's a helpful insight, not only for how we should read Hosea, but actually how we should read the Bible generally with this desire to realize, to learn, and to discover. To discover what? Well, to discover God's ways. Because as and when you do discover God's ways, you then face a couple of choices. You can either follow them, which is the right thing to do, Or you can ignore them and end up stumbling your way through them and through your life. And at the end of the day, that is your choice. We all have that choice to make. To realize, to understand, and then once we have, to either follow or not. But as we thought about two weeks ago, with choices come consequences. It's a gem of a verse because it actually clarifies why we should read Hosea and why next week we're going to start reading Amos because it's through their stories and their writings that we can still increase and enhance and expand our recognition and uh, and appreciation of God and his ways. And then, once we've done that, we are then better prepared to follow those ways in our lives, in our context, February 2011. So for me, that's why we've done this. That's why we read the Bible together every single week. 
because we want to realize and understand. And so this morning, as we explore these last four chapters of Hosea, I would encourage you to sort of come at it with that attitude. That attitude that says, okay, I want to listen. I want to understand because I sense its potential to impact my life. And anyway, again, words of Eugene Peterson, I know what's good for me. Okay, so let's pick up from where we left off two weeks ago. We're at the beginning of chapter 11. We finished up to the end of chapter 10. We're now at the beginning of chapter 11. We're after all the doom and gloom, as I say, of chapters 4 to 10. We're then treated to an incredible insight into the heart of God. So we're just going to at this stage read the first four verses of chapter 11. So let's stand as we, as we usually do, just for these first four verses. When Israel was a child... I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim or Israel to walk. It was I who took them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Take a seat. Some people have, have described those verses as a love song. A very simple song of God sung over and sung to his beloved child Israel. But however you see it or however you hear it, you are confronted with imagery that powerfully communicates the sheer extent of God's love and care for his children. And it begins with this explicit expression of love. It just says, God says, see when Israel was a child, I loved him. I loved him. But what did that love look like? Well, as God speaks, he reminds them how they were called. How they were called out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression. God rescued them is what it means. And in a sense, that is an incredible act of love in itself. I called you. I called you out. And then from there, God says, I watched over you. I watched over you like a loving parent. Look at verse 3. I taught you to walk. I supported you. I was there for you. I was ready to catch you if you stumbled and fell. And secondly, in in, in verse 4, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. It's very intimate. It's an incredibly moving picture that speaks of intense affection and security, warmth, God embracing us, God holding us tight to his cheek. And then finally, the end of verse 4, he feeds. But notice the detail, he stoops down. He gets down to their level in order to feed them. Do you know, sometimes whenever 
we talk about God's love. It can seem a little abstract. A little hard to to actually explain and understand. And that's why metaphors really do help. And one of the primary metaphors that God's word in the Bible uses is that of God as a loving parent. And here in Hosea 11, in these four verses, you come across one of the most amazing moments whenever God's love is described in that way. It's why one Old Testament Bible commentator describes this chapter as among the most remarkable oracles in the entire prophetic literature. Just this one chapter. And in fact, just these four verses. Remarkable picture of God. Because you're faced with this deeply moving picture of God's parental, his fatherly and motherly care, love, nurture and attention. Many ways, here is outrageous love. But did you notice the reaction from the child as we were reading? It's pretty clear from very early on that This is a child with a rebellious streak. Here's a child who doesn't always recognize love. Here's a child who actually doesn't only not recognize love, but is unwilling to accept love. Verse 2 says, The more I called him, the farther he moved from me. Offering sacrifices, burning incense to idols. As God moved towards his children, they moved away to want your love God don't need your love God or at least I don't need it now I needed it when I needed rescuing but I don't need it now there was a failure to even acknowledge or value God's love in verse 3 it says this God has said I taught you to walk I held you and yet verse 3 but he doesn't even know that's Israel doesn't even know or care that it was I who took care of him. How easy it is to take God's love for granted. It it happened then. It happens now. I wonder, have I taken God's love for granted this week? Probably. And it must break, and in fact we know it breaks the heart of God, whenever his compassionate and tender love is ignored. But as we've discovered throughout this book, God doesn't say, okay, have your way. He doesn't give up. God doesn't back off. God doesn't let go. And I find the beginning of verse 4 fascinating. I led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. Now, what does that mean to you? Listen to that again. I led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. Well, as I reflected on that word picture, I couldn't get this image out of my head. Now, for those who are listening by recording, I'm showing the picture of a little kid wearing one of those harnesses with with a strap attached to it, and then that's held by her mum so that she can't get too far away or get lost or get hurt. Now, I know some people might think that's a really restrictive image. That's actually quite a negative device, but clearly, certainly in that picture anyway, the little girl's no problem with it. Because you see, she feels connected to her mum. She feels safe. She feels protected and secure. 
And ultimately the reason a parent does this, out of love. Because he or she cares for their little one. And they know that at various points on their journey out together, the kid may want to do a runner and often tries to do a runner. Wants to break free and yet the parent in love wants to keep the child close as they learn to walk, as they gain more and more of their independence. I, says God, led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. And so what you have in these four verses is one of the most beautiful expressions of God's love and care for Israel, a love that is intimate. And and for some people, they kind of struggle with this. The whole idea of an intimate God who holds us to his cheek. A love that is personal. A love that is tangible. And it's a love that has not reduced in its intensity towards us. Because you know something, see for every one of us here this morning, God's called us. And God's rescued us. And God leads us. And God guides us. And God embraces us. And God holds us close to his cheek. And God stoops down and feeds us. And actually, that's maybe as much as many people need to hear this morning. That outrageous love that God has for every single person sitting here. But let's keep going. Because in verses 5, 6 and 7, you get a further insight into the people's response. And what you find, look at verse 7, they're determined to turn away from God. Another another expression of rejection, to want your love God. And then verse 5 is that there's a blatant refusal to repent of their waywardness. And again, this is such a familiar story. It's played out. It's replayed time and time again today. God, I'm determined to turn away from you. I don't want to repent. And as Paula Guder comments, God's relationship with Israel became increasingly out of balance as God extended to them endless love and they more and more viciously refused it. And so how does God respond now? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. And don't miss the emotion here. You see, despite the pain his kids have caused him and the many ways that they've betrayed his trust, as I say, God will not give up on them. They were his people. They will always be his people. Now, yes, he will punish them. He will reveal his anger to them. But remember, God disciplines the ones he loves to quote a New Testament expression. But he will not, it says, cut off all the ties. And it's here that we are reminded of the steadfast love of God, which is one of the most important concepts of Hosea's prophecy. So look at verse 8, where God says, How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Now those were two cities that were wiped off the face of the earth along with Sodom and Gomorrah, referred to in Deuteronomy 29. But what God's saying is, I'm not going to do that with you. Did it with them, not doing it with you. I've chosen you. These people might deserve exactly the same treatment as those cities, but God's not going there. Why? Well, you see, and here is a bit of a mind stretcher. 
Because the people might be unwilling to turn. There's definitely no change of heart on the people's part. But it seems God is prepared, and I'm nervous saying this, God is prepared to change. God's prepared to turn. Second half of verse 8. My heart is changed within me. <laughs> my, all my compassion is aroused. Now you could easily find yourself heading off on a tangent at this point and trying to get your head around this idea of God experiencing a change of heart. But I'm honestly convinced that if we go there in our thinking, at this moment, in this story, we will actually miss the bigger issue. Because here's the real question to ask in light of all we have read and discovered to date about, yes, the relentless, overwhelming, steadfast love of God, but also the distressing disobedience of his people. Here's the bigger question. What does Israel do here to deserve God's amazing grace? I mean, what have they done that's caused God's heart to change? That instead of being wiped out and left and forgotten and abandoned, somehow and for some reason, they, in their disobedience, in their rejection, in their blatant determination to turn away from God, it arouses the compassion of God. What have they done to deserve that? And the answer, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because it's all about what God does. He has a change of heart. Do they deserve grace and compassion? No. Do we? Not a chance. And yet because of Jesus, we have it in abundance. Does one of us sitting here this morning, and this is what Heather's been drawing out for us, does one of us sitting here this morning deserve to eat and drink? No. And incidentally, if you want an explanation for why God's heart changed, then the closest you'll get and the best I can offer is when God says in verse 9, For I am God. And not a human being. In other words, there's no explanation for why God does what God does. He is, to quote the next phrase in truth of verse 9, the Holy One among you. What does that mean? He's different. He's distinct. He's altogether other. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are high above. God doesn't need to explain himself as to why his heart changed. And so many times you read comedies and everybody's trying to explain why does God's heart change? What exactly does that mean? Sure, God's the same yesterday, today and forever. Do you know something? If God wants to change his heart, God can change his heart towards a people. And I'm not going to try to explain that. And in the next chapter, in chapter 12, Israel's sin and rebellion is once again highlighted and it's brought to the fore by the prophet. He says, listen, there's multiple lies You tell lie upon lie upon lie. You have this endless appetite for violence. And also, you are incredibly dishonest. But in amongst all that negativity is a plea from the prophet to repent. In amongst all of that, there is this plea from the prophet to say, get yourself sorted out with God. Look at verse 6 of chapter 12. Words that are so relevant today. 
But you must, says Hosea, return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. And that for me is a word for today. Come home. Come home. Make your way back like the prodigal into the arms of a gracious God. And then when you have come home, maintain. In other words, commit yourselves to love and justice. And you've got to keep those in balance. You've got to love God with your entire being. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. But you've got to be passionate about justice. Come home. Maintain love and justice. And then throughout your life, Constantly wait on God, or as another translation puts it, always depend on God. Look to him for strength and renewal. And so Hosea says, listen, return, maintain, wait. How do the people react? No. Not listening, Hosea. And as you get into chapter 13 at the start of it, you find what's happening? They're pursuing other gods. They worship the created rather than the creator. They've become, in fact, so seduced by material gods that they're actually kissing calf idols. That's how ridiculous this has got. Despite God's tender, compassionate love and care, they are kissing calf idols. And it's happening time and time again today and so now at this point this is where this gets at this point God's anger is aroused and it is expressed and some of the language you read in chapter 13 is is shocking it's disturbing I said a few moments ago that you shouldn't miss the emotion of Hosea 11, 8 and 9 regarding the steadfast love of God. But equally, it's hard to miss the emotion here as you'd uncover the other side of God's nature. You see, we believe in and we worship a God of love and wrath. And you can't have one without the other. And I know there's a real tension at work here. But that's the reality of who God is. Love and wrath are both expressions of his holiness. Let me put it like this. His anger burns with holy fire precisely because he loves. His anger burns with holy fire precisely because he loves. His love and anger are not set against each other. God is wrathful because it hurts him to see the destruction that sin causes in the lives of the ones he loves. And so God's holiness, his character, requires a proper response to sin. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. In other words, he stops, he ends being God. God takes sin seriously. That's what this is all about. The death of Jesus Christ is the ultimate proof of how seriously God takes sin. But listen to this language. In Hosea 13. Because here's an expression of God's anger and judgment. So I will come upon them like a lion. Like a leopard I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs I will attack them. And I will rip them open. Like a lion I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. 
You are destroyed, Israel, because you're against me. And if you look at the end of verse 13, where it says they're going to fall by the sword, the little ones are going to be dashed to the ground, and pregnant women are going to be ripped open. It's shocking. And it's deeply disturbing. And it's rough. And it sounds hopeless. And you wonder, well, hold on a wee minute, David. What about the steadfast love of God? What about the how can I give you up? Has God's heart changed again? And if the book of Hosea ended at chapter 13, well, that would be unlucky for some. But it doesn't. Because look at 14. There is another chapter. And someone has described the book of Hosea as a bit like a roller coaster ride. In other words, you go from deep despair at one point until you raise to this idea of future hope. And then you find yourself back down in bleak despair. And at the end of verse 13, there's no doubt that's where we find the story. We're at a low point. But here in chapter 14, we begin to climb again because the book ends with an extended prophecy of incredible hope, pointing to how the Israelites can return to God. They can relish God's gracious and abundant love again. You see, yes, God's holiness demands and requires a proper response to sin, but in his grace and mercy, he offers a new beginning. That is who God is. Can I fully explain that tension? No, I can't, if I'm honest. I've really struggled this week to try to wonder, how do I communicate this effectively? God's wrath demands a proper response to sin, but in his love and mercy, he has provided a way out. And so in verse 1, what does it say? Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins And receive us graciously. In other words, come home people. But come home in an attitude of repentance. And express that attitude in your words. Take words with you. It's got to mean something. You've got to say it. You've got to express it. Request forgiveness. Ask God to graciously receive you back. And what will happen? We'll look at verse 4. I will heal their waywardness. And I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. And here you get a glimpse of an eternal truth that God will always forgive those who repent. Always. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I know that for these Israelites. And those who have been following this story. And those who know the rest of the story. For these Israelites. Their immediate future is bleak. Assyria the vulture. Is flying overhead. And is about to drop on them. Their future. Their immediate future was bleak. Why? Because they were unwilling to repent. They were unwilling to return to God. But it wasn't their end of their people's story. A new day and new opportunities were just around the corner. For us, and because we know the rest of the story, 
We know what that new day involved, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we find ourselves faced with this incredible opportunity that we can repent and we can return home. That if we come in honest to God repentance to him, he will heal our waywardness. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the good news we have to share. And so as we finish this morning, let's go back to where we started 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes ago. Because Hosea says, listen, see whose ways. Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous will walk in them. The rebellious stumble them. You see, there is nowhere else we can turn to find the correct path through life. Either we follow God's ways and enjoy the love relationship we were created to enjoy, or we reject God's ways and we stumble in them and we never find our way home. And we live in a world where for whatever reason, despite the fact God loves, there's an unwillingness to return home. There's an unwillingness to repent. There's an unwillingness to allow God to heal our wayward ways. And Hosea offers this prophecy, I believe, because he wants his readers, every reader of this prophecy, to realize these things, to understand. The question is, are we, is our world, is our society wise enough and discerning enough to hear Hosea out? I hope and pray it is. And we are.